This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. Andy and I would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation from whose land we are broadcasting at 3CR and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. Tonight we're on the road to Glasgow. hear from the Smart Energy Council and from Nigel Topping, the United Nations Climate Action Champion. But first, headlines from around the world where climate action is catching on. Brazil. Indigenous warrior women take fight to save ancestral lands to Brazil's capital. More than 5,000 Indigenous women marched in Brasilia. Sonia Guajajara, a prominent Amazon leader, said, We champion biodiversity, keeping the forest standing, which is precisely what ensures us life. More and more, we women are taking the front line in the defence of our sacred mother, Earth. Now, this was all because President Bolsonaro is backing a legal move to open up indigenous territory to commercial mining and agribusiness. Tribal people say this is an extermination effort. It'll be their holocaust, but it will be a holocaust for all of us if the Amazon continues to become a net emitter of carbon dioxide rather than a carbon sink. Number two, Western Australia to ban native forest logging from 2024 in a move that blindsides the industry. $50 million to support affected workers. Premier McGowan said protecting the vital asset is critical in the fight against climate change. And the Wilderness Society said that the decision followed tireless campaigning. Their campaign director, Amelia Young, said the West Australian government had recognised the impacts of climate change and the importance of maintaining biodiversity. She urged the Victorian government to bring its deadline of 2030 to phase out native forest logging to an earlier date. Kenya halts Lamu coal power project at World Heritage Site. This was on the BBC News. The Chinese-backed power station would increase the country's greenhouse gas emissions by 700% activists say. Omar El-Mawi from the Decolize campaign told the BBC, this shows that communities cannot be taken for granted. Kenya would have to import the coal, which goes against its clean energy ambition, and Lamu is a 14th century UNESCO World Heritage Site where there are no cars on the island. Number four, in Australia, Greenpeace makes leaked document known. It shows that the Australian federal government pressed UK to drop climate targets for a trade deal. CEO David Ritter said, quote, Australia is actively engaged in diplomatic bullying to weaken the global climate effort. We saw it with the sleazy lobbying around UNESCO and the Great Barrier Reef, and now this. Number five. In New South Wales, Southern Highlands, the headline was, This win has my community leaping for joy. There was a plan to open a new coal mine under Sydney's water catchment, but it was defeated by relentless door knocking and dogged determination. The Independent Planning Authority rejected the Hume Coal Project and acknowledged that the greenhouse gas emissions from the mine would result in intergenerational inequity. Number six, the 45 climate vulnerable countries slammed middle-class activists who wanted to delay the Glasgow summit. 
a group of, uh, um, of NGOs had said the talks should not go ahead because of lack of access, access and COVID vaccines. But the 45 climate vulnerable countries released a statement. Their ambassador, Mohammed Nasheed, who is the speaker in the Maldives parliament, said, even in the face of death, we must meet. We need adaptation pledges, funding and emissions reductions. Number seven, New South Wales bushfire survivors win legal battle ordering the EPA to take action on climate crisis. The leader of the community group Bushfire Survivors for Climate Action, Joe Dodds, said, this is a significant win for everyone who's been affected by bushfires. The Environmental Protection Authority, as the regulator of pollution, has the power to take immediate action, such as to use its licensing system to require industry to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions. The State Environment Minister, Matt Keane, in New South Wales, said he would not appeal the decision, so he will let it go ahead. The last one is from Norway. The headline is Norway's oil habit at stake in election about climate change. And I can't give you any details because there was a paywall in front of that headline from Bloomberg. But let's hope our next election has climate change at its core. Thank you for tuning in to the Climate Action Show called On the Road to Glasgow. believe that there's a feedback loop between the stories we tell about the future and what happens next. If we fill the airwaves with fear and the failures of our leaders, our desire to work together will shrink. But if we seek out where the positive energy is flowing, we may find the courage to work together in that direction. So I've invited two of Australia's most positive powerhouses from the Smart Energy Council, John Grimes and Wayne Smith. They have a thousand members, I think, in all aspects of the renewable energy industry. They have massive conferences where all these people can demonstrate their latest technology. There's also a series of talks from politicians, engineers, scientists and civil society leaders and a separate series of talks for apprentices and people upskilling for the jobs of the future. As CEO of the Smart Energy Council, John, I'd like to start with you. Um, you told the recent conference that a massive energy disruption is on the way and our government has not thought strategically. Do you feel this is a historic moment for Australia on the road to Glasgow? It is, Vivian. It's a real fork in the road, a fork in the road moment. Um, the, the, the cost of solar and wind and batteries has dropped dramatically, over 80% in the last 10 years. That's for, for all three as a, as a whole. Um, it now means that renewable energy and energy storage is now the cheapest form of generating electricity. Solar en energy, en energy is the cheapest form. That means it's out-competing coal. It's out-competing gas. So not only are those polluting, unreliable, uh, but but now they're increasingly the expensive option. So we, we all of a sudden we have this much cheaper opportunity. And and the the key um, uh, national competitive advantage, Vivian, is that if you take a solar panel and you put it in you know Japan, South Korea, Germany, and you put the same solar panel in Australia, so that it costs you the same amount to buy the solar panel. The one in Australia will produce up to 2.6 times more energy than the one in those other countries. So Australia has a huge advantage. This will be the cheapest place in the world to generate the, the, the zero carbon, cheap, abundant, clean energy of the future. So, so that's really exciting. Well, I sort of feel that everybody else at Glasgow knows that, but not us. 
Well, and, and that, that's because, you know, when we talk about a fork in the road, the, the federal government only has one vision for Australia's future, and that's the vision of the 1900s, the 1800s, where you, you dig coal up out of the ground, you know, you tap into to gas out of the ground, and you power your economy that way. The problem is that the world is going to actually shut that down for us. So it's actually, we don't have control over that. What we do have control over is do we seize the massive economic opportunity to have the world's cheapest power? Because if you've got the world's cheapest power, you've got the world's cheapest manufacturing, particularly in energy intensive industries. You can make green aluminium, you can make green steel, you can produce green hydrogen that can actually be exported to the world and power the economies of the whole world, not just our own. Mm. Well, we'll go to Wayne now. I forgot to say welcome to you both. So Wayne Smith is the Government Relations Manager for the Smart Energy Council. And Wayne, I see you at all the conferences, shaking hands and making sure it all runs smoothly. And you always take time to say hello to me and speak to community radio. So I'm very grateful to you. Thank you, Vivian. I wonder what all those solar installers and pumped hydro experts are telling you about their industry's relationship with government. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Generally, I think that that the renewables industry, whether it's uh, dealing with residential household solar and battery storage or large-scale renewable energy projects, have got a pretty good relationship with the state and territory governments. We're seeing that those state and territory governments are taking on a real leadership role and are actually showing a, both a vision but also a plan for the future. So a good example of that is New South Wales with its renewable energy zones. It's a really clear agenda for the future. And we're also seeing state and territory governments taking, I think, good, strong action to encourage investment in household solar as well. So we're seeing a plan there. But when it comes to the federal government, the Australian government, there isn't that plan. And there's still, you know, a fair whack of hostile, a fair whack of hostility, open hostility towards renewables and certainly towards action on climate change. And so, look, it is fair to say that despite the best efforts of a whole bunch of people, uh, it has been a bit difficult to establish uh, strong relationships with uh, the federal government. But in the end, you know, energy policy is the responsibility of state and territory governments constitutionally and in practice. And so it's really good that the renewables industry has that strong relationship with those governments. Mm. Well, John, what about um, the Smart Energy Council? It's urging, uh, you sent a letter the other day, I think that's why I decided to talk to you. I must get back to you because you said the federal government is a bad, um, you're, oh, no, sorry, you're urging the federal government to abandon policies like the $7 billion coal keeper subsidy. And I wonder who will they send to the United Nations Conference in Glasgow with such a pro-coal and anti-solar uh, sort of agenda. Yeah, Vivian, I think people will be shocked to know that the federal government is actively pushing for a, a effectively a coal keeper and a gas keeper policy that would see consumers pay an extra $7 billion a year, up to $7 billion a year, to the fossil fuel companies um, just because, just because, right? just because they exist and they can, they can operate. So that's a, huge, that's a massive tax that will be paid in the form of everybody's electricity bills that will be a wealth transfer from ordinary citizens, from working families and small businesses to the shareholders of the big fossil fuel companies. Now, that is outrageous. The fact that they even considering that when the world is literally on fire, their response is to put more fuel on the flames is, is outrageous. So, look, uh, you know, the, the problem is that it's so complex, this stuff, and it kind of gets gets caught in the in the machinery of government. And so people just don't don't learn about it. And and but but I think it's really important to draw people's attention. It we should stand up united against that and 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 basically consign that to the dustbin of history. Yeah. Do you know who is going to lobby for Australia? At, or not lobby, but speak up for Australia at that conference. I, I don't yeah. know, but I'll, I'll pass to Wayne. Yeah, but, but yeah, before I... It's a, look, yep. Sorry, it is a really, it's a really good question because um, it actually depends on where, what happens with the federal election. Um, so 
Firstly, it is still possible that there could be a federal election before the COP26 meeting in Glasgow. So that's in November. So it is possible that there could be a federal election, let's say, in November, which would mean that the government will be in caretaker mode. So it won't have any formal decision-making um, abilities. Now, that's interesting because that's actually a way in which Scott Morrison and the Morrison government could actually get out of having to go to Glasgow. So I'm not saying that would be the reason why they call the election, but it would be a convenient timing for them, oh. for sure. Um, now, if but it's also possible that the federal election could be held any time between now and uh, May next year. And so if the, if the election is next year, then the Australian government will send a delegation. Uh, it's possible that the Prime Minister could attend. I would think that's unlikely. I think it is, I think it is likely that... Um, Scott Morrison will announce support for uh, a net zero emissions by 2050, like formally state that as a policy before mm. Glasgow. I think that's likely. That's nice, uh, but obviously nowhere near enough, no. as we all know. Um, uh, but, you know, I would expect that the Australian government, assuming that there's no election, would be represented at a reasonably senior level. And so that may well mean Angus Taylor and a, and a delegation of people from his department and the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. So is there any point in climate campaigners sort of lobbying them heavily to change their tune? It seems unthinkable that they could change. Well, uh, Vivian, um, uh, you know, just, just before we come to that, you know, I, I was outraged when I learned at Paris, during the Paris climate negotiations, there was a pro-coal event staged and there were two countries that basically co-hosted that pro-coal event, the United States of America and Australia. Now, what we've seen in the United States of America is that they've gone from climate laggards to climate leaders. They're actually pushing a global agenda. They're dragging people along. The same thing could happen here too, Vivian, but I, I would say to people it will not happen with the current coalition government that we have in the federal parliament we've tried for a decade to, to through reason and you know reports and you know um, everything else to try and shift them they are unshiftable and therefore it's up to the electors to shift them uh, and that means you know that some people you know who are conservative voting people should actively consider voting for um, moderate conservatives who are progressive on climate you know because that's the way that we break this gridlock mm, okay well, look, um, I see you, John, as a military strategist. I think you mentioned once that you started out in the Army. Is that right? Uh, it, it, I spent almost a decade in the Air Force, Vivian. Oh, the Air Force. That's right. Well, I see you like that, like a military. You, you love strategy. And I think you have a battle plan sort of for peace. You don't want conflict and waste of time or destruction. You advocate on behalf of your members and you promote their training. I've seen all those apprentices doing all their whatever they're doing in that other room, and you invite politicians from all the big parties. And yet I wonder, you know, do you feel your industry is lobbying sufficiently strongly? I think I heard one of the politicians saying to the gathered, you know, industry there, oh, you don't lobby as hard as the fossil fuel industry. They're really all there and you're just hoping we'll change. So what's your game plan? What's your strategy, if that's what they've been saying? Well, it's absolutely right. You know, the vested interests of the big uh, fossil fuel companies, um, you know, pour lots of money into this. They know that their businesses rest on, on, on the, the attitudes of the federal government. We need to start behaving like a much bigger industry. We are a multi-billion dollar industry in Australia. We employ over 25,000 full-time direct jobs in our industry and tens of thousands of indirect jobs. We are a significant force. And so we do need to be much more sophisticated and hard-hitting in our advocacy, because if, we, if, we, if we're not, then just the nature of Australian politics means that we will be dominated and defeated. When I go to those conferences, I'm overwhelmed because there's so many men there and there's so many so much technology and it's all so much like brain, brain snaps, people going, so many ideas and innovations and so on. I like to go outside and, you know, sit in the sun for a little while and gather my energy to come back in. But uh, and I think that therefore the general population isn't really as excited by this big industry as it could be. Do you do you feel that? 
I completely agree. Look, it's really complex. Energy is difficult. It's very, very complex. There's lots of regulations. It's it's kind of a heavy topic. And that's why it's important we need more communicators who can take the complex and make it simple and accessible. Because often what the energy industry is trying to do is they're deliberately trying to make it complex because they don't want your voice in the debate. They don't want the voice of the consumer being the centre of the planning, right? They want the decision-making being made by the, the economists and the lawyers in the back rooms hiding behind their, their 10,000-page documents, right? That's mm-hmm. kind of, that's they, they love that, right? It, it's And they make it unnecessarily complex. So it's not complex. It's really simple. Um, and, and we need to demonstrate to people that the, 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 the one thing they can do to slash their power bills is install solar. The one thing they can do to slash their emissions is to is to think about electric vehicle as those prices come down, um, and 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 to think about you know a home battery so that you can you can create the the energy in the middle of the afternoon where when you're out shopping or you know uh, or at work studying and then use that energy that that zero carbon cheap energy at night time when you're sitting in front of the TV and doing the dishes. So it's it's not difficult, but uh, but we we need to double down in their efforts to communicate this. Yeah. Well, look, Wayne, what what sort of advantage do you think Australia has, not only to be a zero carbon society, but as Beyond Zero Emissions keeps talking about, um, to help the global effort with smart energy exports? Yeah, Australia's got the ultimate advantage. Um, As John mentioned before, Australia actually sits really pretty in the 21st century. Like, you know, we have the best solar resources, the best wind resources, the best offshore wind resources in in the world, the best wave power uh, resources in the world. And so that they're the resources that are actually going to drive the the economies of the 21st century. So in the same way, I guess, that coal drove a a lot of the economies of the 20th century, it's renewable energy that's going to drive it in the 21st century. And renewable energy is extraordinarily cheap now. So solar is now the cheapest form of generation, cheapest form of electricity in the history of the world ever, full stop. Like it's phenomenally cheap. And so what that means is that if we have enough renewable energy and enough uh, solar in particular, then we can drive down the cost of production for everything. And that includes heavy industry uh, as well. So the future of renewable energy is intimately linked to the future of um, heavy industry. The future of regional communities is heavily linked to the future of renewable energy as well, because that's where the jobs are going to be, and that's where the investment's going to be. So that's it, it is really exciting. The other part of it is like if you look at what's happening in relation to renewable hydrogen, renewable ammonia, and renewable metals, where Smart Energy Council is doing a lot of work at the moment. Um, again, we're really well placed. We've got the brains. We've got the research abilities. We've got the great innovators and thinkers. We've got the great startups. We've got the industrial base and we've got the export markets as well. So Japan, South Korea, uh, Germany, Singapore, etc. All of our major export markets are going to be significant export markets for us in relation to renewable hydrogen and renewable ammonia. We absolutely are incredibly well placed to be a renewable energy superpower, a renewable energy exporting superpower. And what that means is that we're really well placed to be a really major economy in the 21st century. The opposite is also true. If we don't harness those resources, we're screwed. We are going to be so far left behind as the rest of the world decarbonizes, needs to decarbonize, needs to take advantage of that. If we don't move, then we're going to be left right behind uh, economically and yeah. environmentally. I sort of feel we're going to have a lot of stranded assets one day. I, I spoke to people well, in Northern it, Territory last week and one group is Sun Cable, Tennant Creek to yeah. Darwin with a above ground, you know, energy thing from big solar farm, I think, and then under the sea to Singapore. Magnificent, huge project. Magnificent, fantastic. Is all is gas, you know, gas from Tennant and, Creek to Darwin. Same thing. And and here and here's the thing. So if we don't if, if we don't make the right decisions now and in the near future, Australia's going to be a stranded asset. Well, okay. <laughs> 3CR has been fantastic and I would certainly encourage people to be donating as much as they can. Truthful, upfront and most certainly topical and current. 
uh, for a long time. And if you want to know what's going on in the climate debate in Australia and around the world and what the latest research is and also the solutions, 3CR is where you're likely to actually hear them first. You're listening to the Climate Action Show at Radio 3CR in Melbourne and Radio Skid Row in Sydney. Tonight, on the road to Glasgow, we're talking to John Grimes and Wayne Smith from the Smart Energy Council. Now I'd like to ask each of you just to speak to the climate action community. I think a lot of our efforts, whether through Greenpeace, 350.org, Lock the Gate, Get Up, Seed Mob, there's the religious groups also, they try to stop coal oil and gas, whether through financial levers or locking themselves onto their buildings or or petitions, all sorts of ways, but stopping that juggernaut. Children have taken the Environment Minister to court, uh, the Environment Court, and in fact, the judge said she had a duty of care to future generations, so she's appealing that, Um, but that should stand. And Indigenous people are begging us not to frack the Northern Territory. But it feels like a parallel universe when I go into the Smart Energy Conference. It's all, you know, gung-ho entrepreneurs and making money and growth and, and it seems to have nothing really to do with that other. Is that just a rearguard action? I would like to see the two the two movements more aware of each other. And um, I, I know Australia is going to go to the global conference and play a wrecking role and people are getting very discouraged. You know, you get you reach a point of burnout wondering what's going to happen next. And you you always, both of you always say it's going to happen really quickly. It's going to change. The world, as you've said tonight, the world will force us to change. But what do you want to say to climate campaigners? Where to put their energy? You know, we're very close to the climate movement, have been for many years. They, they are a fantastic asset and don't underestimate the, you know, the, the role that a small group of passionate people can do in their local community. In fact, that is the thing that changes the world. So, so I'd, I'd encourage all of those movements across the country. When I see the, the climate strikers, those kids, right, who strike coming over the hill and they muster 20 and 30,000 people to, to march on, on the Parliament House in Sydney, Melbourne, at Canberra, Adelaide, elsewhere, right, then I feel like the cavalry has just come over the hill, right? <laughs> I think that is so energising to have that movement behind us. What we're saying is because the the federal government has a very strong narrative. It's It's been a winning narrative for about a decade. And their narrative is this. You can either have a strong economy or a safe climate. That the cost of taking climate action is so big that it's going to bankrupt us all. Right, so it's not worth trying to trying to get meaningful action on climate because it's too expensive, and we're saying that that is rubbish. That actually the renewable energy of the future is cheaper than the current system, and therefore you can have a strong economy and a strong climate and a safe climate. Right, those two things are not so. So their their narrative is wrong, and that's what we seek to call out. You can have a strong economy, you can have good jobs, you can have low pollution, uh, and 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 so it's it's finding the win in all of that. Where where I think uh, you know we're gonna we're gonna make the quickest the quick gains. You know, and that's really what we're about is trying to find find those wins where the environment wins and the economy wins. And Vivian, you know, if you ask me what what drives me personally. It's the climate. It's all about the climate, right? <laughs> I'm just trying to find the most productive way to try and uh, solve this issue and, and break this false narrative. Yeah. Well, Giles Parkinson once said to me, oh, um, you, you, you shouldn't underestimate how quickly change happens, just change. And I said, oh, but I can't see it. You know, I'm always saying this. And he said, look, it's like a road train in the desert. It just seems like a little dot of light. And then it's just a little dot and a little dot. And then whoosh, it's gone right past you. And I get that i do understand the change because i've lived through several changes i think we all have lived through society changes that really surprise us now when you look back but this disruption of the whole energy system of so many other systems is very hard for people to kind of visualize what what, would you like to say something about that how you think people talk about exponential change we see it on graphs but can you just give us some picture of it uh, I can wait, wait, I'm sure I'll have some views as well, but yeah. I'll just give you one example. You buy a solar system and put it on your roof, you know, in Sydney, say, 
the amount of, 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 of the cost of the electricity that that produces, if you take the cost that, that, that it costs to buy it and you amortise it over, say, 20 years, then the cost of electricity from that system is $0.05 cents per kilowatt hour. Now, most people in Sydney are paying about $0.40 cents per kilowatt hour for electricity from the, the socket, from the grid, right? So it's not as if there's a small difference between 40 cents and 5 cents, right? There is a huge difference. If you don't have solar on your rooftop, you, you, you should have your, your head red because the savings are so enormous, right? Now, it's, that, it's the economic rationalism of that, right, that is going to drive this massive, this massive transition. So it means distributed solar distributed batteries, electric vehicles that are being charged by people's solar panels in their, in the, during the, the, you know, when they're at home. We're seeing large renewable um, uh, farms, you know, um, with solar, wind and batteries and pumped hydro being built that will power the heavy industry economy of the future. And all of the businesses, schools, supermarkets, nursing homes around the country. Uh, and, and so, we, you know, because it is the cheapest, it will actually become the dominant really quickly because that's how markets work. You know, it's, it's crazy to be spending more money on something when you get it for much cheaper price. Wayne? Yeah, and look, here's another example of, of change. I think there's, a, the, there's grounds for hope here as well, which is that uh, if you go back in time, so let's go back to 2006, so 15 years ago, um, federal labour actually committed um, under, I think it was under um, Kim Beasley and then and then under um, Kevin Rudd, um, um, federal labour committed to significantly increasing Australia's renewable energy target. To the, at that time, they made a commitment of 20% renewables. Now, was that enough? No, but it was a huge increase on what John Howard had at that time. And now we got to 2020, we obviously met that target very, very easily. Federal Labor, state and territory governments and many others committing to 50% renewables by 2030. Is that enough? Yeah, not really, no. But it's a significant improvement. And then increasingly the community was calling for 100% renewables and people thought, well, that's a bit mad, isn't it? And is that really achievable? Um, and then um, people started saying, well, yeah, 100% renewables is not that much actually when you think about it. And then the head of the Australian Renewable Energy Agency not too long ago said Australia should be aiming for 700%, 800% renewables, which is all about making Australia renewable energy exporting superpower, right? And that's the vision for the future. And people, certainly decision makers across the board, certainly state and territory governments, are starting to understand the opportunities that come from that and are starting to really dream big. And you can see how that can uh, how that can happen. And you, Vivian, talked earlier about the Sun Cable project, which is about exporting great Australian sunshine to Singapore, right? And the Asian Renewable Energy Hub project, which is about powering the Pilbara uh, with renewables and building and, and exporting massive amounts of renewable energy to the world. That's an extraordinary vision. That's all happened in an incredibly quick period of time, and it's it's not it's we need to take the community with us and you certainly need to take um, people in, in coal communities, for example, with us, right? But it presents extraordinary job and export opportunities and income and, and uh, investment opportunities along the way. So it's a really exciting vision for the future. Yeah, thank you. Well, look, to finish with, uh, John, I'd just like you to advertise the global race to zero. I got a letter from the Smart Energy Council this morning, or Wayne can talk about it. Um, it I'll tell the listeners it's um, a free online summit just before Glasgow on the 20th of October and the 21st of October, a two-day summit, and it's called Global Race to Zero. And I'll put the details in the podcast summary. But would either of you like to tell us there's massive, wonderful speakers there, uh, heads of state and also civil society leaders like Bill McKibben and, and so on. What are you looking forward to in that? Totally. Wayne, did you want to uh, do a quick uh, summary there? Yeah. yeah, look, Vivian's really, really exciting. Like it's going to be a major event, as you said, in the lead up to the G20 meeting in Rome and in the lead up to the COP26 meeting in Glasgow, we're calling it a global event with an Australian accent. So we'll bring together some of the world's biggest uh, thinkers uh, in this space, together with political leaders, business leaders, civil society leaders. Um, it's a two-day two event um, and it's going to go from 
8 a.m. to 8 p.m. So it's pretty full on. Um, I would I would expect um, that we'll have um, we're working through the program right right now. I can uh, tell you as an exclusive uh, that the former Australian um, Foreign Minister uh, um, Bob Carr will be a keynote speaker, former Australian Foreign Minister and New South Wales Premier, long-standing um, and, and, and a significant player internationally in action on climate change, actually, will be a keynote speaker. We've got Malcolm Turnbull, the former Australian Prime Minister. Uh, I would expect that we'll have um, senior ministers at least from a number of countries around the world. Um, we've been talking to embassies uh, in Canberra, so embassies and high commissions, and we're looking for very strong representation from the G20 countries. And uh, there'll be a whole range of different speakers, really strong focus mm -hmm. on the economic and employment opportunities from action on climate change and, and the economic and employment opportunities that come from electrifying everything and, and then um, uh, working with renewable hydrogen, renewable ammonia for those really hard to decarbonise industries as well. And then finally, what I'd say is that we're formally partnering with the Race to Zero campaign, and that's part of COP26. And it's really about encouraging Australian businesses, but also international businesses, to take strong action on climate change and to make really strong pledges in the lead up to the COP26 summit. So in a way, Australia's federal government is one aspect of what Australia is doing, but Australian business and Australian people are doing quite a lot. Is that the message? That is totally right. And industry is leading, companies are signing on, cities and communities are signing on. And so, and so, it, and, and the thing I got from last year's event, we had about 7,000 people register last year. This year, we're going for 10,000 people, completely free of charge. But the, the, the comments were, it's, the, it's given people the most hope they've had in a long time. Mm -hmm. They were inspired by the presenters and the message. They heard people, you know, uh, major leaders, um, uh, international leaders like the UK Energy minister say that the uk is going to be out of coal by october 2024 i mean these are fantastic this, this is the good news that people need to hear and so that's why i think it's a, a really great event to be part of okay thank you very much so we've been talking to john grimes and wayne smith at the smart energy council let's take a break now on the road to glasgow i found this music called beyond warriors by guifrog i think they're a french group but somehow this music reminds me of Scotland, where they will have to go beyond being warriors and work together bravely at this most momentous climate conference.
I'm from the Lakota Nation in the geographical center of North America that we call Turtle Island. And community radio is about your community, your heart, which 3CR Community Radio is right here at 85.5 a.m. So it is digital, and I'm, I'm presuming you can you can go worldwide with it. Um, people are listening in America to you, so talk back. Australia to the Earth. Peace with Earth. Thank you. Teokas and Ghost Horse. Community Radio is your love. Now here's Nigel Topping. He's the United Nations Climate Action Champion. He's been going around the world meeting people and drumming up ambition and interest in the Glasgow Conference. My grandfather grew up in the northwest of England, surrounded by over a thousand coal mines within just five miles of his hometown of Wigan. And today I'm speaking to you from the site of another former mine, this time a China clay mine, at the Eden Project in southwest England. For generations, my grandfather's ancestors were coal miners, and it would have been only natural for him to follow in their footsteps. But he didn't want to go down the mine. He chose a different path and got a scholarship to study mathematics. And years later, I followed him into mathematics, where I discovered a real love of patterns and of figuring out the underlying rules that generate them. And later, when I went to work in industry, I realized that every human system and every natural system can be thought of as a set of repeating patterns. For example, take the energy system. We can still trace the patterns of our reliance on fossil fuels all the way back to the early 1700s when we started to really use all that coal. And to tackle climate change, we're going to have to move towards new patterns that are based on clean power. When I wasn't exploring patterns, I was developing a love of wild places, particularly cold wild places like Greenland, uh, Iceland and Patagonia. And it was there that I first came face to face with the physical impact of climate change. In 1987, I was supposed to be working at the end of a glacier in East Greenland. And when we got to where it was shown on the map, there was no ice there. It had retreated by over 15 kilometers since the map had been surveyed. Something was changing the patterns. Now I find myself in the role of the United Nations Climate Action Champion, working with an amazing network of partners to change the patterns of the global economy to tackle the climate crisis. Our mission is to help drive the transition to the zero carbon future, to keep global warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius or 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit and to prevent the worst impacts of climate change. Well, tackling the climate crisis can be really overwhelming, especially if you try and look at it through the lenses of politics or economics. It's a huge, complex problem. It's very hard to get your head around it. But I find that there's a different lens that can make it much easier to grapple with and even lead to optimism. It's the lens of systems, which I define simply as the science of patterns and their underlying rules. But what do I mean by a system? I think of a system as a set of interconnected relationships which lead to a repeatable and recognizable pattern. So to give you an example, let's think of the global maritime shipping industry. It's huge. It's responsible for transporting over 80% of global trade, and it produces similar emissions to the entire country of Germany. And this system consists of the interconnected relationships along the value chain between shipping manufacturers, fuel manufacturers, ports, the shipping operators and the cargo owners, and those influences around it, the policymakers, the financiers, technology providers and civil society. That's what I mean by system. And our job is to drive the transformation in every global system, from agriculture to retail, from shipping to trucking, from uh, cement to steel, so that collectively we move towards a zero carbon future. So the question is, what are the underlying rules that we need to apply to lead to new zero carbon patterns in the economy? Well, we've come up with three simple rules of radical collaboration that, if acted on by all actors in each system, will lead us to the zero carbon future. Rule one is to harness ambition loops, which are simply feedback loops driving ever higher levels of ambition. 
For example, when businesses commit to zero carbon and start investing and innovating, they embolden policymakers. And when policymakers set the regulatory framework to drive towards zero carbon, they incentivize the private sector to innovate. That's an ambition loop. And every relationship within each system is an opportunity to drive an ambition loop towards new zero carbon patterns in the system. Rule two is to set exponential goals. We know from history that every major industrial disruption has followed the same shape, an exponential curve, with new technologies being adopted very slowly at first, but then a doubling rate kicking in consistently until the overall transformation happens very quickly in the end. It's a movie we've seen many times before, whether from horses to cars, from valves to transistors or landlines to mobile phones. And we understand how it works. Uh, initially, the cost of technology is high, but as we learn through volume adoption, the cost goes down and adoption goes up. Best example right now would be electric batteries consistently coming down in cost by 20% a year for the last 10 years. Um, and as the volume of adoption grows, especially with um, electric vehicle sales growing, we can be confident that the costs of that technology will continue to go down, driving that exponential growth. We set these exponential goals because we believe in the power of human innovation. Uh, engineers love these goals, these stretch targets. It's what they live for. The third rule is to follow shared action pathways. And these are maps of the actions which every actor in the system has to take in the short term to make sure we're on track to that exponential goal. Actions that if everyone in the system follows means that we'll be on track to the zero carbon future. We normally set these for a relatively short period of time, say the next five years, and then we'll review and set the next phase of the journey. By following these three simple rules of radical collaboration, we can drive the race to zero emissions. And my team now, with hundreds of partners, have created a toolkit for these three goals for every sector of the global economy. They've mapped the interconnected ambition loops, they've plotted exponential goals, and they've published shared pathways. Now, I said earlier on that adopting a systems lens can uh, help us to be more optimistic, and I'm very optimistic. So let's try and explain why by looking at the application of those three rules to the shipping system that we looked at earlier. First of all, we just remind ourselves of all of those interconnected ambition loops that we're going to be harnessing. Second of all, we set our exponential goal. Well, we're at zero now, and we've got to get to 100% of all ships being zero carbon by 2050. When we plot the exponential curve, we see that we need to get to 5% by 2030. Now, that may not seem like much, but starting from zero, that's a big change, and it will drive the learning which drives down the cost, which means that in the 30s, we can really accelerate and finish the job in the 40s. So how are we doing against the shared action pathway, which is the next of our tools? Well, it turns out we're doing pretty well, actually. The biggest container shipping company in the world, Maersk, has already committed to buying its first zero-carbon vessel in 2023. German utility Uniper has abandoned plans to invest in gas infrastructure in the port of Wilhelmshaven and is instead investing in green ammonia infrastructure. Customers are coming together to form the Cargo Owners Zero Emission Vessels Initiative, sending a demand signal to uh, container operators. And policymakers are shifting too. The EU is extending its emissions trading scheme to cover shipping emissions, which will put a price on carbon and incentivize investments in green fuel infrastructure. Technology companies are coming together. Seven of them have formed the Green Hydrogen Catapult to drive the cost of green hydrogen down to below $2 a kilogram in the next five years. Crucial action on that pathway towards commercial viability for zero carbon vessels. And civil society is influencing the system as well. In the Netherlands, over 10,000 citizens have taken shipping fuel manufacturer Shell to court, and the court has found that Shell must reduce its emissions much more ambitiously, by 45% by 2030. So you can see that we now have radical collaboration in the shipping system driving progress towards that exponential goal. And that's just one system in the world economy. So the great news today is that now thousands of countries and companies, um, of cities and investors, of states, 
and civil society organizations are all implementing these three simple rules of radical collaboration um, and converging actions towards uh, exponential goals. They're not fully aligned yet, of course, but the more we converge, the lower the risk, the lower the cost, and the faster that we can go. Um, and so what might have seemed a real stretch or even impossible just a few years ago seems eminently achievable now. My favorite example of this phenomenon is the transition to electric vehicles. In 2016, the world's leading forecasters of the energy system were telling us that we'll still be buying combustion engine cars in the 2080s. Five years later, in 2021, the vehicle manufacturers of the world and the policymakers of the world are converging on the exponential goal of 100% zero emission vehicles, the end of the combustion engine in the mid 2030s. In just five years, the future's come forward by five decades. Now, as I said, this task of tackling the climate crisis and driving this transition can be really daunting. Um, but as always, we can turn to nature for inspiration on how following a few simple rules can lead to beautiful new patterns. Take a look at the stunning shapes that these flocks of starlings are forming in the sky by following their own three simple rules of radical flocking. Rule one, pay attention to each other and don't get too close. Rule two, fly in the same general direction. And rule three, don't fly too far away from each other. Pretty close to our own three simple rules of radical collaboration. One, harness ambition loops. Two, pursue exponential goals. Three, follow shared action pathways. Now, I want to finish by reflecting on one final and crucial ambition loop, one that enables all of the others. This is the feedback loop between the stories that we tell of the path to the future and the future that we create and the actions that we take today. We humans are storytellers. We're born storytellers. We tell stories to each other all the time. And these stories of the future are our ambition loop. So if we tell stories full of fear and failure, then we will dispirit and disempower each other. We'll derail our collective efforts to build a better future. But when we tell positive stories, we tap into the very best of the human spirit. We inspire collaboration and innovation. So it's crucial that we pay real attention to the stories that we're sharing about our pathway on the race to zero. We have to make sure we seek out and select positive examples of change along those pathways to the exponential goals and share them widely. That's how we build the most important and powerful ambition loop of all. Because the stories that we tell the most often are the ones that will come true. When you compare an old growth forest compared to a forest which is regrowing after a disturbance like logging, they're actually quite different ecosystems. Generally, like older, wetter forests slow down the path of fire, and this is actually quite a well-known phenomenon. Historically, these big, large fires have been quite rare, but what we've seen in the last 20 years is they're becoming quite a lot more common. So we've had three in the last 20 years. This is definitely because of climate change, which is making our ecosystems a lot drier and the fire weather more intense. We need to keep radical voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. You've been listening to the Climate Action Radio Show. Our aim is to let you know where action is being taken and how you can help. Many people still think that you can't do anything. That's wrong. Don't let's give in to that. We need encouragement too, presenting this show. So please send a cheerio to Radio 3CR if you feel like it. But mostly we look at the download numbers for the podcast. And those numbers are down at the moment. And I think people maybe are losing interest or they think there's nothing they can do. Please download the podcast and send it to a friend. There is so much to be done and links to action that you can take will be in the podcast summary. Thanks tonight to John Grimes and Wayne Smith at the Smart Energy Council, and thanks to Nigel Topping, the United Nations Climate Action Champion. 
when I see the, the climate strikers, those kids, right, who strike coming over the hill and they muster 20 and 30,000 people to, to march on, on the Parliament House in Sydney, Melbourne, at Canberra, Adelaide, elsewhere, right, then I feel like the cavalry has just come over the hill, right? <laughs> I think that is so energising to have that movement behind us. Music tonight was from the Clan Stewart Pipe Band with the Skyboat Song. And thank you to Guifrog with the music Beyond Warriors. We'll go out in a moment with Eric Armour playing Scotland the Brave. But meanwhile, my name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasure. be scared. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. hear from Violet Coco. She's with Extinction Rebellion. You might remember her. She's the lady with the pram, the burning pram. And uh, she'd like to tell you about the next series of actions by Extinction Rebellion, which come under the heading of Reclaim Our Future. Violet, could you just tell us what listeners in Melbourne and Sydney can do? Oh, um, well, what they can do is very simply whatever it takes. What we need right now is deeds and not words. We are in a climate code red situation and the government has a duty of care to young people. And, and we have to take this to the officers of the government, the MP officers and um, all around you, you know, everyone's, some people are locked down in COVID. So, but you've got an MP office within your limits, then you need to be taking this um, demand of their duty of care to them in an escalatory fashion, because as we can see, everything we've tried in the climate movement so far has failed. And so we really have to step up because, um, you know, property will cost us the earth and our need to continue to grow on a finite planet and the need to protect this property. So, um, yeah, if you can come to Canberra over the week, um, we basically start on the 16th of October and um, it's for the two weeks of federal government sitting. There is a wa escalatory wave of actions happening. And then we move into, as you know, um, the international climate talks. And there's a very strong message coming from the global south that your greed is killing us. And that's the message that we need to amplify to the politicians. So this is really a really, really important four weeks um, on the, of the climate movement starting the 16th of October. And the message is clear. Um, we need to do whatever it takes and we need deeds, not words. Okay, so the two weeks in Canberra from the 16th and um, there are information sessions beforehand. I think if people look up your website, which is ozrebellion.earth, is that the right one to look up? That's correct, elsrebellion.earth, or you can come along to our social media campaign platforms as well, Extinction Rebellion Australia, 
And on there, yeah, we are holding every Friday night an information session on how to get involved. Um, and uh, yeah, it, from there you'll learn and be upskilled really as well on how to take powerful action. Um, we're in a time where it's so important that people recognize that a small amount of people can make a big difference if they're willing to um, to really take powerful action. It's always very colourful, Extinction Rebellion. I, I've participated in the Red Rebels with all the costume and the beautiful music. How can you entice listeners to think this is going to be also quite creative? Oh, oh well, it is going to be very creative. Um, we have a whole arts team behind us as well uh, who are making giant um, koala sculptures and um, but what 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 you can bring is really as you say color flags bring your sign um and and come with love in your heart and and a preparation to sing because if you've been to an extinction rebellion protest you know that we we love to sing with each other and and um and make the space really beautiful (laughs) 